Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, What more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a... There is nothing stronger than a mother's love, except for, in some cases, a mother's hate. On October 17, 1995, a woman was sentenced for the heinous crime she committed against her own flesh and blood. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Teresa Jimmy Francine Knorr was born Teresa Cross on March 14, 1946 in Sacramento, California. The younger of two daughters born to Swanee Gay and Jim Cross, Teresa's father worked as an assistant cheesemaker at a local dairy and eventually saved up enough money to purchase his family a home in Rio Linda. Unfortunately, in the late 1950s, Jim was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease was forced to quit his job, and descended into a very deep depression. That depression turned into anger, and his family became his main targets. While Swanee kept the family afloat financially, she suffered from heart failure and passed away in March of 1961. Teresa, who was incredibly close to her mother, was absolutely devastated by the loss, and unable to keep the family home, Jim was forced to sell it. Needing to get away, on September 29, 1962, Teresa, just 16 years old, married a man, Clifford Clyde Sanders, who was not only five years older than her, but whom she had only known for a few months. She immediately dropped out of high school, got pregnant, and on July 16, 1963, gave birth to her son, Howard Clyde Sanders. The relationship between Teresa and Clifford was a rocky one from the very beginning, with the former, a possessive woman, constantly accusing the latter of infidelity. Things got so heated that on June 22, 1964, Teresa went to the police and said that her husband had punched her in the face during a dispute. 
She, for whatever reason, decided not to press charges, and everything was dropped. Weeks later, on July 6, 1964, the day after Clifford's birthday, the pair were at each other's throats again due to the fact that he chose to spend his birthday with his friends instead of at home with his family. Screaming back and forth, Clifford suddenly told Teresa that he was finished and that he was leaving her. Completely enraged, she picked up a nearby rifle and shot her husband in the back as he attempted to walk out the door. Quickly arrested for Clifford Sanders' murder, Teresa told the officers and the courts that the entire thing was an act of self-defense. Saying he was a violent alcoholic who abused her constantly, a pregnant Teresa took the stand at her trial, while Clifford's friends and family, claiming he was neither violent nor abusive, called the shooting, quote, malicious and, quote, without provocation. In fact, even Teresa's own sister took the stand and testified against her, saying that she was just possessive and jealous enough that she would kill her husband, quote, before any other woman could have him. Despite the claims against her, Teresa Sanders was acquitted on September 22, 1964, and on March 16, 1965, gave birth to her second child, Sheila Gay Sanders. After Sheila's birth, the now single mother of two began drinking heavily, and oftentimes spent her evenings at the local American Legion Hall, where she met Estelle L. Thornsbury. A disabled U.S. Army vet, the two hit it off and began a relationship. Moving in together not long after their meeting, Teresa would often leave her children with her new boyfriend while she went out drinking. Questioning why she stayed out for days at a time, Estelle soon found out that Teresa was having an affair with his best friend and ended their relationship. Not letting the setback bring her down, Teresa began dating a U.S. Army Corps private named Robert Knorr. She got pregnant a short while later, and the couple married on July 9, 1966. After their first child together, Susan Marlene Knorr, was born on September 27, 1966, the couple had three more in rapid succession. There was William Robert Knorr, born September 15, 1967, Robert Wallace Knorr, Jr., born December 31, 1968, and Teresa Marie Knorr, born August 5, 1970. Despite the constant growth of their family, Teresa and Robert's marriage began deteriorating rapidly after she started accusing him of having affairs. Things got worse, both became volatile, and both began beating not just each other, but the children as well. Fed up with all the accusations, Robert finally left Teresa in December of 1970, and they officially divorced in 1971. Though he attempted to have a relationship with and see his children, Teresa made it impossible. Following her divorce, Teresa Norwood married two more times. First to a railroad worker, Robert Pulliam, in 1971. They divorced the following year after she left her children with him to go out drinking and he believed she was having an affair. And Sacramento Union copy editor, Chester Chet Harris, in 1976, who got so close to Teresa's daughter, Susan, that she divorced him out of jealousy just four months later after she reportedly found out that he enjoyed taking consensual nude photos of women. Now, something seemed to break within Teresa after that fourth and final divorce. Though she had, in the past, been known to physically, verbally, and psychologically abuse her six children, things seemed to escalate after she left Chet. She gained a tremendous amount of weight, 
became a recluse to the point of actually disconnecting her house phone and refusing to allow her children to have friends over and forced them to stay tucked away inside their two-bedroom apartment in Sacramento. By the time they made the move to that apartment, after living in Orangevale for a bit, Howard, the oldest of her children, had already moved out. But even without him present, there were still six people living in what neighbors called a filthy apartment that smelled like urine. The neighbors also started to notice how all of Teresa's children seemed, on the very few occasions she allowed them to leave the house, to be fearful, nervous, and incredibly high-strung. What they didn't know was that, behind doors that seemed to always be closed, Teresa, for years, beat and tortured her children. She would force-feed them, burn them with cigarettes, throw knives at them, and force them to hold a sibling down so she could beat them properly. In one instance, she even held a gun to her youngest daughter's head and threatened to take her life. Though all seemed to suffer at the hands of their mother, it seemed that Susan and Sheila were the main targets. Older and turning into beautiful young women, Teresa took out her anger and frustration about the aging process on the girls, and for one reason or another, believed wholeheartedly that Chet Harris turned Susan specifically into a witch. Things got so bad that Susan eventually ran away from home. She was picked up by the local police and taken to a psychiatric hospital, where she told the staff all about her mother's abuse. Teresa, of course, denied the allegations and told them that her daughter had, quote, mental issues and wasn't to be believed. No one went further with an investigation, and Susan was sent back home with her abuser. She was immediately punished for her transgression, and Teresa, after beating the girl with leather gloves on, forced the other children to take turns beating their sister. Still angry, Teresa spent the next few weeks handcuffing Susan to the kitchen table and demanding the children stand watch over her at all times. She refused to let her leave the house, forced her to drop out of school, and eventually pulled the other kids out as well. This meant that most of Teresa's children never made it past the eighth grade. Susan would spend the next two years handcuffed under the table, being fed by hand and forced to wear a gag. After suffering for years, the young girl begged her mother to let her go. So, the next morning, Teresa went on a rampage and began beating all of the children, handcuffed Susan for a minute, and handed her youngest daughter, Terry, a gun and ordered her to keep it trained on her big sister. She then went into the kitchen with the other kids and began making oatmeal, when one of them dropped a spoon and scared Terry. The gun went off, Susan was hit, and Teresa, instead of getting her daughter help, immediately rechained her under the table. When the girl began bleeding out, Teresa simply got angry that there was now a stain on her carpet. Susan begged her mother to take her to the hospital, but instead she decided to nurse the wound herself. Making the other kids help, Susan eventually lost consciousness, not from the initial bullet wound, but from the attempts by her brother Robert, at his mother's behest, to get the metal out of her body. This led to an infection and, eventually, sepsis. On July 16, 1984, Teresa Nora packed up all of Susan's belongings, bound her arms and legs, and ordered Robert and William to place her in the car. They drove to Squaw Valley. The boys put the trash bags full of her stuff on the side of the road. 
placed Susan on top of it, and then Teresa, the girl's own mother, began pouring gasoline on everything. She then set the pile ablaze with Susan still alive on the top. The still smoldering body was found the following day, but due to the state of the remains, a positive identification could not be made. Back at home and with Susan now gone, Teresa began directing all of her anger on Sheila. She forced the girl into sex work in May of 1985, using her to support the family financially instead of working herself. And after initially being placated over the sheer amount of money that she brought in, began loosening the leash on her daughter and let her go out whenever she wanted. However, after just a few weeks of this new arrangement, Teresa got angry and accused Sheila of being pregnant. Going further with her claims, she said that Sheila must have contracted an STD that Teresa now had after sitting on the same toilet seat. Sheila, of course, denied her mother's wild accusations, but Teresa, not to be deterred, began beating her daughter, hogtied her, and locked her in a hot closet that had no ventilation. She then forbade all of the children from giving Sheila any food or water, or even opening the closet door. But young Terry disobeyed and gave her sister a beer that she had found. Terry would later claim that Teresa, quote, wanted Sheila to confess. That was mother's way. Beat them until they confess. Wanting to put an end to her torment, Sheila confessed to her mother's claims. But even then, Teresa said that she was lying and refused to let her out. Three days later, on June 21st, 1985, Sheila Sanders passed away from dehydration and starvation. After discovering her daughter's body, Teresa left her there for three more days before, once again, ordering William and Robert to dispose of the body that had, by this point, started to decay and stink up the apartment. The boys placed Sheila's body in a cardboard box that they left near the Truckee Tahoe Airport. She was found a few hours later, but like her sister, could not be identified. Even though Sheila's body was now out of the apartment, the smell of decomposition still lingered, and Teresa, concerned the smell might alert someone to her crimes, decided on September 29, 1986, to pack up all of their belongings and order Terry to burn down the apartment. Doing as she was told, the young girl poured three containers of lighter fluid on the floor and set it ablaze. Unfortunately for Teresa, the closet where all of the evidence from Sheila's murder sat was left untouched because the neighbors, seeing the flames, quickly reported the fire and had it put out before much damage could be done. Though it would take years for things to be connected to Teresa, that closet ended up being the final nail in her coffin. After leaving the blazing apartment, Teresa went into hiding, and all of her surviving children, most of whom were by this point of legal age, severed ties with their mother. Even Terry, who was just 16, managed to escape using Sheila's ID to pass herself off as an adult. The only child to remain was Robert Jr., who by this point was 19 years old. He and his mother moved to Las Vegas, Nevada and attempted to keep a low profile. However, in November of 1991, Robert was arrested after fatally shooting a bartender during an armed robbery, and he was sentenced to 16 years in prison. His mother quickly abandoned him and went to live in Salt Lake City, Utah, 
where she settled down, started using her maiden name, and was working as a caregiver for her landlord's 86-year-old mother. While she attempted to start her life over, as if she never took the lives of her own children, Terry was bravely attempting to contact the police and report her sister's murders. The Utah police dismissed her story, as did the therapist that she visited. But on October 28, 1993, she made a call to the hotline for America's Most Wanted and was told to contact a detective in Placer County, California, where Susan's body had been found. She did, the detective took her seriously, and an investigation was started where both Jane Doe's were connected and identified as Susan Marlene Knorr and Sheila Gay Sanders. William Knorr was arrested on November 4, 1993. Robert Knorr, already in prison, was charged with his sister's murders, and on November 10, 1993, Teresa herself was arrested in Salt Lake City. Five days later, she was charged with two counts of murder, two counts of conspiracy to commit murder, and two special circumstance charges, multiple murder and murder by torture. She pleaded not guilty at first, but eventually made a deal after she learned that Robert Jr., planned on testifying against her in exchange for a reduced sentence. On October 17, 1995, Teresa Knorr was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences and remains in prison. Her next parole hearing will be in July of 2024. William Knorr was sentenced to probation and ordered to undergo therapy, and in exchange for his testimony, all charges against Robert Knorr Jr., save for one, were dropped. He pleaded guilty to the accessory after the fact charge and was given three years to be served concurrently with his other sentences. Following Teresa's arrest, police decided to open up the case of her own sister, Rosemary Knorr Norris. You see, Rosemary had been found strangled to death back in 1983 after she went grocery shopping in Sacramento. Though the arrest proved that she was capable of murder, police found no connection between Teresa and Rosemary's murder. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on October 18th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there is always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. <laughs>